In November 2020, things are starting to look up. Australia's coronavirus caseload is tiny. Melbourne just marked 14 consecutive days of zero community transmission. There's even talk of a promising vaccine to be rolled out next year. But on the whole, it's safe to say 2020 has been pretty miserable. So in this episode of Think Sustainability, we thought we'd spotlight some exciting new developments in the sustainability sector. What projects have been underway while we've been glued to our TVs following COVID and the US election? I sat down with three experts in environmental fields to celebrate innovative renewable energy projects, the circular economy, and what a Joe Biden election victory means for Australia's climate policy. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatzel. So firstly, some introductions. We are joined by Dr. Nick Florin, who is a research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Nick, welcome. Can you give us an example of the work you do at the Institute? Yes, so ISF is a research institute based at UTS with uh, a mission to create change for sustainable futures. And um, we work across numerous areas from renewable energy, water, transport and waste and resources. And so my role is uh, managing the resource futures team and our work is, um, you know, focused on supporting circular economy transition, resource recovery and recycling and sustainable supply chains. Also joining us on the panel is Professor Veena Sahajwala, who is the founding director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology, otherwise known as SMART. So the SMART Centre at UNSW, not only do we do the science, uh, we also um, have set up our own micro factories, smart micro factories at UNSW, which actually are demonstration facilities where showing that materials that come from our waste resources are actually really valuable and useful. They're, they're resources that can be harnessed uh, to produce highly valuable products. And last but not least, Dr. Chris Briggs joins us on the panel. He is a research principal at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. Chris, what do you do at the Institute? Yeah, that's right. I work on um, areas relating to clean energy transition, um, in particular around areas of um, jobs and how to, how to engineer a, a just and fair transition. Um, I was also one of the founders of a body called the Business Renewable Centre, which works with government agencies and businesses who want to buy power from solar and wind farms through what are called power purchase agreements um, and an increasingly important part of the, the market for renewable energy. If you give a climate arsonist four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised if we have more America blaze? We need a president who respects science, who understands that the damage from climate change is already here. Unless we take urgent action, it will soon be more catastrophic. So there have been calls from climate activists and politicians for Australia to, in a sense, mirror the US's climate policy now that Joe Biden has been elected as president. 
As you are all probably well aware, he is returning the U.S. to the Paris Agreement and is committing to a target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And for those who don't know, net zero carbon emissions basically means achieving an overall balance between greenhouse gas emissions produced and greenhouse gas emissions taken out of the atmosphere. So, Chris, do you think Biden's election win will motivate Australia to act on climate? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's going to increase the pressure to act on climate, um, assuming Joe Biden does indeed become president through all of the tumult and takes the US back in the Paris Agreement. It'll mean that 70% of our trading partners have net zero commitments. Japan, Korea and China also recently signed, also translated Paris commitments into net zero targets recently. Um, and they're three of our ma- the major buyers of our coal exports. So... Um, we, we, I mean, we have effectively signed up to do net zero emissions as part of our part of signing up to the Paris Agreement, but it's not been translated into national policy or targets yet. Um, you know, I, I think the internal politics of the coalition means that they seem, seem to make them incapable of really acting on climate, but it's happening all around them and the pressure is clearly going to increase. International governments will be putting more pressure on them. We will, there will be implications from access to trade markets, particularly the EU, and we're going to start to see impacts on um, our coal export markets as well. So I don't know if it's going to really motivate the government to actually take action, but the, the pressure and the, the risks of them being mugged by reality are getting stronger and stronger. Vina, do you agree that more international pressure will motivate the federal government to act? It's not just suddenly Biden's kind of doing what he will set out to do. Fair enough when it comes to dealing with COVID and a lot of those things, it's fine. But I guess also recognizing that, you know, in, in, a, in a place like US and of course Australia also giving credit to a lot of businesses, um, do a lot of things. Don't wait around necessarily for government policies. Um, I mean, the US does very well because business, despite what you hear, it's business that is very progressive in the way they think about new technologies. You know, I mean, I did my PhD in the States and I think to me, um, that's the difference if we had to sort of say why they're doing so well, despite the government. I mean, yes, despite the last four years of everything else that media reported on, it didn't mean that businesses were doing nothing. Well, the federal government has indicated some kind of plan in their most recent technology roadmap. Uh, The paper, like you mentioned, Chris, makes projections about emissions cuts rather than any real commitment. What did you make of the paper? Well, I mean, we've, I guess we've seen these roadmaps before. The Howard government did one over a decade ago, and, and yes, it prioritises gas and other things. Um, in a sense, though, it's not so much uh, about the roadmap. It's about the fact that even if we have a roadmap, we don't have a target, we don't have, um, we don't have policies, it's not really a roadmap. It's just a stock take of technologies. And what we need, of course, is a, is a national policy, a genuine national policy. I mean, to me, here's always a question. It's like, particularly in this time where we're talking about sovereign capability and all of that. And I mean, quite so often we hear about technologies coming from Europe and US and, oh my God, we have to look at what they're doing. And I, and I think to me, this is where I sort of take a bit of issue with that. It's almost like, well, yeah, but you know what? Um, let's think for ourselves and let's not undermine the good work that happens here. People are not aware of new technological advances that are taking place in Australia and and how we actually develop solutions that's fit for purpose for Australia. 
So, Chris, the Clean Energy Council commissioned the Institute for Sustainable Futures to research renewable energy jobs uh, last year. You found that renewable energy will be a major source of jobs in the next few years, but you also found that there's potential for very different trajectories uh, dependent on policy decisions taken now. What do you mean by this? Yeah, we did what was really the first large-scale survey of renewable energy jobs. There were very different scenarios or futures possible depending on what government did. Under the current policy scenarios setting um, used by the energy market operator, we'd actually see a loss of as many of 11,000 or 26,000 jobs in the industry. Um, so depending on what government does, you know, there's a difference of as many as $30,000 uh, 30, jobs. Um, the leadership of, of state governments recently means I think we're going to push up towards the higher end of that scenario, but there's quite a range depending on what, what governments do to support renewable energy. What we also found was that renewables already creates twice as many jobs as the domestic coal sector, and it will create a, a comparable number of jobs to the whole domestic and export coal sector. Um, we looked at whether the scope for renewables to provide jobs in coal regions and there's, there's some overlap, but generally renewables creates jobs across a much wider range of regional areas than, than, than coal, which concentrates the, the jobs in a handful of areas, really. So you mentioned that there's leadership from state governments. A lot of them have set their own targets for net zero by 2050. In New South Wales, for example, the city of Sydney is now powered by 100% renewable electricity generated from wind and solar farms in regional New South Wales. So we're talking about streetlights, pools, sports fields, town hall, all run on renewable electricity. What do you make of this milestone? Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting agreement. It's part of an emerging trend where governments and businesses are signing power purchase agreements with solar and wind farms directly. So since 2016, over 80 organisations have now signed these sorts of deals. Um, and as retailers have actually slowed down investing in renewables, these deals have taken up the slack. So in any given quarter, they're now a third to a half of the investment in new renewable energy. So they're, they're a really big deal. They're, they're really leading the, the energy transition right now. Um, the City of Sydney was one of those agreements, um, but one can find 100% renewable agreements also with big corporates as well as other government agencies. Um, so it's now a really a mainstream and very important part of the energy market is governments and businesses buying directly from solar and wind farms. The New South Wales government also announced a $32 billion renewable energy plan recently, projected to generate over 9,000 jobs. Have you had a chance to look over the details of that plan? Yeah, I have had a look. Um, it, it's very exciting. I think it's, it's really a, a bit of a landmark for clean energy in Australia, actually. I think it's the first holistic transition plan that we've seen. Governments, of course, have had a, a range of initiatives to grow renewable energy and, and, other, and other things, but... I don't think we've seen a, a government actually come out with an with a integrated plan to look at how we replace coal-fired power as the power stations retire in years coming with renewable energy. So they're going to grow um, 12 gigawatts of renewable energy and 2 gigawatts of storage. In practical terms, that means taking renewable energy from around 15% currently to around 60% of, of the energy mix by 2030. So it's a really big deal. Um, and, and the roadmap actually sets out a plan for how they're going to achieve that. They're going to establish renewable energy zones across regional areas in New South Wales, which have the best resources. 
They're going to coordinate investment in the generation and the poles and wires to then connect it up to the grid. And they're also going to include incentives and measures to maximise local jobs, community benefits, um, and make sure that, that local communities also get benefit out of, out of these projects. So, you know, I think it's a bit of a landmark. As I said, I don't think we've seen a genuinely integrated transition plan like this before. And exciting news, South Australia became the first major jurisdiction in the world to be powered entirely by solar energy for just over an hour on the 25th of October, where energy demand was met by solar panels alone. Um, I guess it's a bit of a vision of the future. Um, Australia is kind of almost unique in some senses in that we're a laggard by international standards in terms of our climate policy, but our, the transition going on in our energy markets is actually one of the most rapid. Um, and, and so we're up to 30% renewables now generally across the entire market. Um, projects that are being built or, or have finance committed will take us to 45% by 2025. And so we're going to see more and more of these moments, you know, times when we're being powered entirely by renewable energy. We're not there yet because we need the storage and other things is to create a firm supply along with the renewables. But it is, I guess, a testament to how fast it's actually moving in Australia within our own energy markets um, and, and very exciting. The energy market operator says we can currently cope with 50 to 60% renewables in our grid. And with some reforms, we could, we could integrate 75% by 2025. And there's no fundamental reason we can't go higher than that, but we will need to change our markets and our regulatory system um, but moments like this tell you that it's, the transition's happening and it's, it's, happening, it's happening quickly. Let's turn to the circular economy. It's the alternative to a linear economy, which is based on the premise that you make, use and dispose of items. So a step further is make, use, recycle, whereas a circular economy goes even further than that and gives emphasis to keeping resources in use for as long as possible. We have to understand that all materials in the form of different products at some point or another will reach obsolescence. And I think to me, that doesn't mean the end of the world. It simply means that the metals and the plastics and glass and all of those important materials can actually be harnessed from products that we already have in our hands. It's also about new, new business models, um, you know, sharing platforms, uh, bike sharing or, or car sharing, and, and, and these new ways of sort of accessing products um, essentially enables us to utilise, uh, you know, products more intensively during their lifetime and, and, and maximise the value of, the, of the, the materials that have gone into making them. Okay, so what you're both talking about is the fourth R. So often we think about the three R's, reduce, recycle, reuse. But there's a fourth R, which is the idea of recovering or reforming items. So, Veena, how do you and your colleagues follow that philosophy at the Smart Centre at UNSW? 
it's reforming our materials right down at that molecular level so we can constantly give it new life. And it constantly keeps coming back in the form of new products and new devices. And that's really where scientific discoveries that smart underpin our micro factories and therefore our ability to actually transform our materials into new forms, whether it is a new chemistry or new structure. But with that purpose in mind, that these materials have to be recycled, reformed, remanufactured. And I'd like to think of this as enabling the science, enabling circular economy in a really, really high level sense. The Council of Australian Governments, or COAG, has implemented a waste export ban, which is effective from January 2021, which basically bans the export of plastic, paper, glass and tyres. The idea is to increase the amount of waste material that stays in Australia to be recycled and reprocessed into value-added products. Nick, what does this export ban mean for our local manufacturing capabilities? What it means for Australia is that we need to expand our our local industry for sorting and cleaning and flaking and pelletizing and 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 by expanding that local capacity um you know as Veen has been emphasizing there's this great opportunity to to create new jobs um you know there's many more jobs in 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 recycling than there is in in landfilling and um but but also there's the further opportunity that by sort of enabling or by creating this higher quality uh recycled material we're going to enable new uh, local manufacturing that that, that can use it um, to create new products yeah i'd, I'd agree wholeheartedly i mean uh, you know nick's uh, obviously making some very important points there that i think it really does come down to our ability to respect and value quality you know we've been producing for instance plastic filaments out of waste plastics um, and these plastic filaments are now fit for purpose a lot of end users using them and trialing them for 3D printing, uh, where in the past, you know, plastic filaments, um, and even now, of course, a large part of that is being imported into the country. And what we are really saying is that, you know what, you don't need to import it. We can manufacture this right here. It allows, you know, our manufacturers to actually source some of these materials locally and, and really create far more value in terms of, you know, the supplies of highly value-added products that we can manufacture. And therefore, you know what, let's start to manufacture it right here in Australia and let's imagine exporting highly value-added products to other parts of the world and generating more local economy that way. Um, and, and those revenue that we talk about, streams that come from really creating these high-value products. So I think to me, um, you know, we need to think and use this as an opportunity to think long-term and be really bold. Um, and I think this is really what we're seeing with a lot of our uh, manufacturing partners. Okay, so the export ban is really about boosting our manufacturing capabilities and that reform element of the circular economy. The onus is also on the individual, so that would look like buying more recycled content in everyday purchases and boosting the amount you recycle. Nick and Vina, as experts in resource recovery, recycling and sustainability in general, what are your tips for listeners who wish to live a sustainable life? I guess I'm going to continue on the theme that I've been discussing, but I think uh, to reduce packaging waste, uh, seek out opportunities to buy in bulk and choose, you know, reusable, refill- refillable containers. One of the things that I've been involved in and, and, and I'm excited about, I suppose, is uh, a new library of things called Make Do, 
which was you know, recently established in, in Bulleye. Um, as listeners may be uh, aware of tool libraries, there's, there's one in, in the inner west and it's, it's, it's much the same idea, but a, a broader range of um, products are available to borrow, from, you know, including tools, but, you know, camping equipment, tent, tents, um, party supplies. And, and, the, and the way it works is you become a member, pay a fee to become a member, and then you can borrow items throughout the year. And, 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 and it's a great initiative. It, it reduces consumption by increasing the use of products that are borrowed by, you know, multiple households rather than, you know, being bought by an individual household. I'd probably say, Julia, something that um, I, I think would be a pretty cool way to go back and look at all the old things that you have at home and don't throw it away, bring it back to life, whether it's your old clothes, your old shoes, get them repaired, support the, the local businesses, whether there's a you know, shoe repair shop or, or a tailor who knows um, how to get the best way to fix clothes and um, you know, set yourself a challenge. Okay, so this year has been tough, to say the least. What innovations or developments in sustainability in 2020 are you celebrating? Well, I I think, Judy, I've got to say, I mean, uh, we definitely are celebrating the fact that, um, you know, at at UNSW, the Smart Centre, we've developed and the journey that we've arrived at in 2020 has been around our microfactory technologies. The celebration is really more because of the fact that we've got some incredibly fantastic forward-thinking industries in Australia. And that, I think, to me, is cause for celebration. I was excited to see a new partnership between Woolworths and and TerraCycle, who have developed a a new offering called Loop, um, where essentially um, key brands offer to customers, you know, their products in, in, in new reusable or, or refillable packaging. And, and there's just a really great opportunity to expand these reusable and uh, refillable packaging models in, in, in this um, business model. And lastly, what is one sustainability-related issue you think the pandemic placed into the spotlight this year? To me, you know, this this whole sort of you know question around supply chains and how disruption uh, clearly has taken place in front of our very eyes all accelerated in 2020 actually shines a light very much on sovereign capability and the fact that I think it's about ultimately you know as much as we like to think that, you know, everything, global supply chains, all well connected and, you know, everything's happening just in time and all of that sort of stuff, which was always a model for supply chains beforehand. I think it also kind of sheds a light on the fact that that very philosophy sometimes does break down when, you know, you do run into what we've seen in 2020. Um, and so I think part of this also, that notion of helping circular economy at the localized level um, is becoming an important lesson that everyone in the world is learning. You know, so whether it's around accessing uh, just essential goods um, and services and what you can access locally is an important thing to keep in mind because whether you're talking about you know, repairing your goods and making it more sustainable or manufacturing or reusing, um, I think in all of those cases, 
it kind of shines a light on the fact that we do need to actually value and respect our materials and our products and you know the more sustainable we are means that we have to you know really show that in our local economy we can actually find alternative pathways to sustainability You heard from Veena Sahajwala, who is the founding director of the Center for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology, otherwise known as the Smart Center at UNSW. You heard from Dr. Nick Florin, who is a research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. And you also heard from Dr. Chris Briggs, who is a research principal at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. So despite a hard year, there have been many sustainable developments, innovations and breakthroughs, whether that's the city of Sydney powered by 100% renewable electricity, a waste export ban to encourage the reform of materials here, or on a bigger scale, international momentum to set targets of net zero by 2050. There's quite a bit to celebrate. Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. And you can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company. <laughs>